Good morning, church. Wow, that was awesome. (laughs) I'll be reading from the book of Hebrews, chapter 13, verses 1 through 8. Let's brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Amen. You may be seated. Good morning. You guys doing well? Cool. Good to hear. Here we are, second week, back together again. Yeah. Praise God. Good to see you guys. And uh, we've been working our way through a teaching series called Unshakable Identity. We now come to the next uh, characteristic of our unshakable identity, those of us that are followers of Jesus Christ and that characteristic is that we are secure, we are secure, never forsaken. I should have titled it, Never, Ever, Ever, Ever Forsaken, as you will see in, in the text, because it, it's that emphatic. And if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Hebrews 13. We just read verses 1 through 8. We're going to focus in on just uh, two verses, 5 and 6. And... Um, Also grab your sermon notes out. I want to start off, since we're talking about security, we need to define insecurity. And so I got the definition for you there on the top of your notes. So insecurity is a feeling of general unease or nervousness that comes from perceiving of oneself to be vulnerable or inferior in some way. Typically, this can happen around certain people or in certain circumstances. With the economy dropping out from under us, many people are are insecure about that, and many people are insecure about this pandemic. And so uh, it's, you feel vulnerable or inferior in some way that can lead to, if you don't deal with it, it will lead to doubts and fears that control us. Now, what are the symptoms of this? Because I, I've, I've come across people before where they say, well, I'm, I'm not insecure. And then as I walk through some of the symptoms, they realize, yes, you are. In fact, so here's some of the symptoms or the signs of insecurity, boasting, controlling, impatience, worry, complaining, 
know-it-all attitude, self-righteous, anxious, people-pleasing, needing constant reassurance, perfectionism, workaholism, defensiveness, when confronted, become defensive, scornfulness. If I can push everybody else down, it makes me feel really good. There's a lot of scornfulness in our culture today. And bitterness, uh, inauthenticity. This, the next one, I don't think it's on your notes, but it was brought, uh, brought up in our staff this last week as we were working through the notes. And wallflower, being a wallflower, being kind of antisocial. I don't want to be uh, up close and personal. Stay away. And, uh, and then also being unfriendly or snobbish or restlessness, kind of a general restlessness in our soul, overly talkativeness. Do you know a few people like that? <laughs> There's a few sitting right on the front row here. <laughs> overly talkativeness. And then self-consciousness. And then the list goes on. So did I miss anyone on that list? I think I hit everybody. So what I want you to do is just take a moment and circle those on that list that best represent the people that are sitting around you. Okay, I'm kidding. Don't do that. Uh, you might want to circle those that best represent you. And I've got a number of them on that list that represent me in revealing my insecurity. Now, do you want to know why it was easy for me to come up with this list? It's because, because I hang out with you guys. <laughs> Sorry. Actually, I know myself too well. And, and, and so uh, insecurity runs much deeper than what we think. Now, what is the cause of this insecurity? Well, insecurity is the result of sin and suffering. Sin, it's a failure to trust God in relationships or finances or economy or any number of things. We become insecure because we're, we're not fully trusting God. It can come also from suffering past hurts. If a woman has been abused by a number of men in her life, she will feel insecure around men in general. So that insecurity is coming from past abuse that must be dealt with. So insecurity is the result of sin and suffering. Now the ultimate cure, and this is really the thesis statement of, of our message uh, this weekend, what we're dealing with, the ultimate cure to our insecurity is to abandon any attempt to find our security in anything else other than Christ and his redemptive love. Philippians 3, verses 7 and 8. So our tendency here is that when we become insecure, we start building, trying to get our security out of something that is created and temporal as opposed to the creator who is eternal. And so we may feel secure for a time because we got a great job and a big bank account and any number of things, but then eventually, eventually uh, that will come under attack. You'll lose that. It'll be... It'll be threatened, maybe blocked or lost in some way, and then there goes that insecurity again because you've built it on something that is insecure, ultimately. It's temporal. It's a created thing. And uh, so don't be deceived in that. 
your security needs to rest solely in Christ and his redemptive love. Now let me give you a little bit of the background of this text in Hebrews, just so you know what the book is about and why he's saying this. He's, he's writing to predominantly Jewish Christians and, um, and they're under heavy persecution to the point that they can't endure it and many are defecting from the faith and going back to Judaism. And so if you've ever read through Hebrews, he's, he really references the Old Testament quite a bit. And so he begins to show them how in the Old Testament, specifically in the sacrificial system, it all, it all points to the supremacy, the sufficiency, and the satisfaction of Jesus Christ. And then he says, therefore, because of this, fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, Hebrews 12, 2. And so chapter 13 is kind of really the wrap-up. It's the last chapter of the book, and it's giving us a list of, of the result of fixing our eyes on Jesus. So if you fix your eyes on Jesus, this is what will be true about your life. And one of those is that you will be secure because he told us he would never leave us or forsake us. And so that's the basis of what we're studying here. So let's answer the question, what is the cure to our insecurity? I already told you, but more specific, let's look at this, God's promised presence. God's promised presence. That's your first fill in the blank on your notes. It's based on verse 5c. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Now, who's the he here? Anybody? It's God. So think about this. If God said, I will never leave you or forsake you, I think you can take that to the bank. God is saying this. I'm not saying this. The writer's not saying this. God has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. Now, where has he said this <laughs> throughout Scripture? This is, this is the most, um, and in fact, it's uh, one of the most frequent promises in the Bible. I am with you. I am with you. I will never leave you or forsake you. That is the most frequent promise in the Bible. Now, what's interesting about this uh, phrase, I will never leave you or forsake you, there are five negatives are used in this statement to emphasize the impossibility of Christ deserting believers. And so it's, it's like saying, there is absolutely no way whatsoever that I will ever, ever leave you or forsake you. That's, it's that emphatic. Or you could say that he said to us, I will never, ever, ever, ever leave you or forsake you. That's literally what, what the Greek here is trying to get across. New Testament was written in the Koine Greek. So when you understand that, you begin to go, oh, wow, that's pretty emphatic. Now, he says, leave us. What does that mean? That, that has to do, I will never abandon you. But why would he say forsake us? Well, he's, he's very emphatic here. So he's saying, not only will I not abandon you, but I will not forsake you. And forsake means to be abandoned in crisis or suffering. So I will never, ever, ever leave you. I will never abandon you, especially in times of difficulty and suffering, even though 
it seems as though he has, he is saying, no, I will never, ever leave you, especially in times of suffering and difficulty. And, and so it's one thing to know intellectually in your head that God is present with us. It's called the omnipresence of God. It's a doctrine in the Bible that talks about he's everywhere present. He's here with us this morning. And then when you leave, he will be with you wherever you go. That's the omnipresence of God. And it's one thing to know intellectually in your head that God is present, but it is altogether another thing to know experientially in your heart God's presence. So it's the difference between the omnipresence of God and the manifested presence of God. So how can I know experientially God's presence in my life? And uh, let me give you the answer. I gave you these verses on your notes. Ephesians 2.13 This is the beginning of being able to experience the presence of God in our life. He says in Ephesians 2.13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, that's all of us, we were alienated from God because of our sin. We are sinners by nature and by choice. And so you who were once far off have been brought near, so we've been reconciled, how? By the blood of Christ. So if you want to experience his presence, the first thing is you need to be born again. You need to have regeneration take place in your heart. And and you do that by grace, it's unmerited favor, by grace through faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. And when when you do that, then you have the presence of God. You can experience the manifested presence of God. Okay, I've done that, Pastor Ray, and I'm still not really experiencing that manifested presence of God in my life. Well, here's, a, here's another thing that helps, helps us to understand this. So now that you're a believer, this is what you need to do if you want to experience the manifested presence of God. Psalm 105.4, he says, seek the Lord and his strength, seek his presence continually. Seek the Lord in his strength. Seek his presence continually. So what does it mean to seek the Lord? I'm glad you asked. Because I'm going to explain that to you. In fact, in 1 Chronicles 22:19, it says this. It's going to teach us. It's showing us what it means to seek the Lord. Seek his presence continually. Now set your mind and heart to seek the Lord your God. So so what this text is telling us is that it is a conscious choice to give God the focused attention of your mind and the deep affection of your heart. This is the opposite of mental coasting, which that's what we do a lot. And our, our culture encourages that with the internet where we're just coasting through the internet and, and watching TV program after TV program. We're just kind of mentally coasting, not really thinking too deeply about, about anything. Now, we must learn to meet God in this moment. In this moment, right now, in this moment. You've got to learn how to meet God in the moments of your life, the current moments, the present moments. We are always tempted to live outside this moment. And when we do, we lose a sense of God's presence. So let me just confess here. 
I, I struggle with living in the moment, and, and I live most of my time in the future, thinking about what I need to do, my to-do list, I need to prepare for this sermon, I need to do that, I need, so I'm constantly preparing for the future. I overly prepare, and that's my insecurity. So I don't live in the moment, and sometimes I even live in the past. I go back and go through uh, thinking and brain debating over what someone said to me or how they said it, you know, how I understood it, what I would have said if I knew what I know now after I've thought about it. Anybody there? Yeah, I mean, it's just like you sit and go, man, I should have said this to them. That's what I should have said. Well, maybe it was better that you didn't, okay? And so that's, that's okay. But that's where we live. We live in the past or we live in the future and we, har- we have a hard time living in the present. Right now, this is where you're going to meet God, in this moment. And so it has been called practicing the presence of God. Practicing, it, it, that means developing habits of grace or spiritual disciplines that daily increase your awareness and experience of God's presence. Practice the presence of God. What are you doing? Well, it's a continual conversation with God that includes adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication, intercession, meditation. I mean, you're just walking through the day interacting with God. Someone tells you about a crisis in their life, you immediately begin to take it to the Lord in prayer. You're enjoying that great coffee early in the morning, and you immediately thank him. God, thank you for coffee. Thank you for this beautiful day. Thank you for... So you're interacting with God. You watch something on the news that troubles you, you begin to pray and intercede for the folks that that is impacting. And so you're just doing that throughout the day. You're praying for your coworkers that don't know Christ and maybe even persecute you. So you just pray, oh God, get a hold of their heart. Get a hold of their heart. Soften their heart. And so that's practicing the presence of God. The Bible calls it abiding or walking with God or keeping in step with the Spirit. This is what Jesus said about it in 15.5, John 15.5. If you abide in me, you will bear much fruit. You will bear much fruit. Let me explain a little bit of that fruit, and let's talk a little bit about this, this George Floyd murder in Minneapolis that was absolutely horrible. Absolutely horrible that what happened. But what's happening after that is absolutely horrible. And you don't overcome evil with evil. You overcome evil with what? With good. Where is that found? Romans 12, 21. And literally what he's saying there, he says, do not become like the evil that is being done to you, but overcome evil with good, and so you don't seek justice with unjust means. And so we as Christians should be leading the way on that. We should be helping people to see that and how to respond to crisis and difficulty. And, and so th- th- what it, it's just another reminder for me as a pastor is that how people are desperate for the gospel of Jesus Christ and the word of God because people are clueless and our culture is unraveling at a very rapid rate. And so even more so should it create an urgency within all of us to get the gospel out. 
Because I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. That is what will transform people's lives. And so as Christians, so when I see events like that, I'm praying. I'm saying, oh God, please, please help us, rescue us, redeem us. And so I said that because I believe that people who practice the presence of God Practicing the presence of God will bring to you the ability to love even your enemies. I believe practicing the presence of God will bring you a joy in the most unlikely circumstances. I believe that practicing the presence of God will bring a peace that goes beyond all understanding. When the world is burning around you, you have this peace because you know it's not out of control, it's under the control of our loving, wise Father who has our best interest at heart. So that's the fruit. He says, if you abide in me, you will bear much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. Now, the more you practice his presence, the more it will become really second nature to you. And it just become a part of your life. You just immediately, when you wake up, so, and this is how it is with, with myself, and I know it's true with my wife too, is that the last thoughts on my mind as I'm going to sleep is talking to him and interacting with him and practicing his presence. The first thing that comes to mind early in the morning is him, walking with him, listening to him interacting with him, enjoying him, loving him, experiencing his love for me, knowing him, praising him. That's practicing the presence of God. Oh my goodness, it's absolutely glorious. It's beautiful. It's a, it's a, it's a fantastic way to live, believe me. In fact, this is the best thing about the Christian life is that we have his presence. That's absolutely the best. There's nothing better And so, this isn't something you do occasionally or casually or in a cavalier way. In fact, if you will seek him like your life depends on it, which it does, you're just out of touch with reality if you don't believe that. So if you would seek him like your life depends upon it, then you will find him. In fact, the Bible makes that very clear. Uh, Jeremiah 29, 13 The writer here says the prophet Jeremiah is speaking to the people on behalf of God. And by the way, the context here is that they are in exile. They've been conquered by an enemy nation and drug off to that enemy nation uh, to work for them and be immersed by that culture. So they're in really negative circumstances. And he starts off by saying 29.11, Jeremiah 29.11. How many are familiar with Jeremiah 29.11? Many of you have memorized it. I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. And then two verses down from that, he says, if you will seek me, you will find me if you seek me with all of your heart. And so what he's saying here is, is really even in the worst circumstances, we can experience God's presence. Hebrews 11.6 puts it this way, without faith it is impossible to please God. Now he's going to define what faith looks like. So, so without faith it is impossible to please God. For whoever would come to God, if you want to practice his presence, you want to have intimacy with God. Whoever would come to God must believe that he exists and that he is a rewarder of those that diligently seek him. I ask people a lot 
do you believe in God? And there's a lot of people out there that would say, oh yes, I believe in God, but it's a general idea of God. They have this general belief that God exists, but they don't have a relationship with him because they're not seeking him. And so you, you need to have a general idea that there's a God, but it's gotta go beyond that because when you seek him with all of your heart, you will find him and there is great reward in that. So here's my question for you. What is our greatest reward in seeking God? Kind of alluded to that already. Turn to the person next to you and see if they know the answer, if they were paying attention from what I said earlier. Real quick, do that. What is our greatest reward in seeking God? How many are thinking God? That's right. He's our greatest reward. We have him. We can know him. We can experience him in our lives. So a few weeks ago, I asked, uh, this was when you were watching us online, uh, I asked this question, what are your go, maybe it was before that, but what are your go-to passages that help you through suffering? And I, I shared with you a few of those. Now I'd like to ask you this question. What are your go-to passages that stir your appetite, your passion for God? What are those passages that you go to when you feel like your heart's a little bit cold toward God and others? What are those go-to passages that allure you or entice your heart for God? I've got about 17 here. I'm not going to read all of them, but these are just a few of the verses that I go to, I love, I meditate on, I reflect on. Psalm 34, 8, you're probably familiar with this. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Or Psalm 36, 7, how precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house. When was the last time you feasted on the abundance of his house? They feast on the abundance of his house. You give them drink from the river of delights. He's talking about intimacy. He's giving these, uh, these images, the, these word pictures to help us to grasp more clearly what this intimacy with God looks like. And you give them drink from the river of your delights, for with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. Psalm 73, 25, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. Psalm 84, 1, how lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord Almighty. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. Those, that verse stirs my heart for Christ. And then in verse 10 of that same chapter, Psalm 84, for, for a day in your courts is better than what? A thousand elsewhere. So what are your go-to passages? Here's what I have found as it relates to enjoying intimacy with God, that once you have tasted his presence, his absence is unbearable. Not that he goes anywhere. It's just you don't have a sense of that on your heart. And so I'm desperate every day. Oh, God, make your word real to my heart. Make your presence real to me. Because really right now I'm kind of living out of, out of touch with it. So I'm desperate for that. 
And so what is the cure to our insecurity? God's promised presence. So what are the results of God's promised presence? Here's your next fill in the blank. Freedom from idols, that's the first thing. He says, keep your life free from the love of money. Literally, what he's saying here is keep your life free from covetousness. That's the Greek word there. So covetousness is a controlling desire for the things that you do not have that you think will make you happy. Here's what Jesus said about covetousness. He says, take care, be on your guard against all kinds of covetousness because real life and real living does not consist in the abundance of our possessions. And so we're so bombarded in our culture, billion dollar industry telling us that happiness is one purchase away. And it's buying their products somehow will make us more fulfilled and happy and satisfied and all these things. And that's a lie, but, but we're swimming in that. So it creates this discontentment within us. Actually, we already had that discontentment because we're not going to Christ as we should. So we got discontentment and that's why we find ourselves uh, buying things that we, we don't need oftentimes. And uh, we're driven by that and, and accomplishments and achievements and acquisition of, of things. And and it's all idolatry. So in other words, what he's saying here, keep your life free from covetousness, keep your life free from loving anything more than God. Keep your life free from loving romance or houses or cars or food or clothing or shopping or your kids or sports or leisure, your job, your health, and you could probably add to that list, etc. Loving all of these things or any of these things more than God. Notice he says keep. Keep yourself. He's saying you've got to take personal responsibility. But he also says keep yourself free. Why did he say free? Because idols will control you. Listen to what Rebecca Pippert says. Whatever controls us is our Lord. The person who seeks power is controlled by power. The person who seeks acceptance is controlled by acceptance. We do not control ourselves. We are controlled by the Lord of our lives. So how do you identify your idols? I know my idols. Do you know your idols? I even know my wife's idols. Let's talk about hers for just a moment. I'm kidding. She's in here right now. Don't look at her, okay? So let's, let's just, how do we identify our idols? Let me go through 10 questions. You're not gonna be able to write these down and maybe on a f- later date we'll, we'll go through them uh, slower. But I just wanna, want you to get kind of the general idea here to how do you identify those things that you love more than God. Although you might say, no, 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 I love God more than anything. And yet uh, your, your life would betray you and show that you probably don't by your inordinate anxiety, anger, and depression as a result of those idols collapsing or being threatened or being lost. You're not just sorrowful, you're in despair. And so what controls most of your thoughts and feelings? What motivates the things that you do? What are you most afraid of? What brings the highest amount of frustration and anger into your life? What is the one thing that can change your mood in a second? What would your friends say is your favorite topic of conversation? What are some things you think you could never live without? What brings you solace or 
comfort, support, relief? What do you yearn for? What is one thing you wish God would do for you? So you get to the bottom of those questions and you identify your idols. That's where the war is. That's where the war is in our hearts. Those idols are competing for our heart's deepest loyalties and affections away from God. And here's what you need to know about idols is that you cannot remove idols, only replace idols. Why is that? You can only replace idols because remember Exodus 20, the first commandment of the Ten Commandments, you shall have no other gods before me. Notice there's not a third option. You either, what he's saying, you'll either serve the true and living God or you're going to serve an idol, but there's not another category of, well, I'm not going to serve anything. No, 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 you will serve something or somebody. We are created to be worshipers, and so something will be at the center of your life. And so I've seen people remove idols like workaholism only to do athleticism, you know, more in that and spend more time there. And I've seen people go back and forth between idols because you can't remove them, you only replace them. Thomas Chalmers helps us with this. Uh, 1780 to 1847 was a Scottish mathematician and a leader of the Free Church of Scotland. And he wrote a, a message, a sermon, it was titled, The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. And... Um, And in that, this is what he said, the only way to dispossess the heart of an old affection is by the expulsive power of a new one, to expulse, to it's, you're you're replacing it in essence. That's what he means by that, you're replacing it with something that you have greater affection for. Uh, Psalm 16 uh, helps us with this, kind of gives us how this works out in our life. Psalm 16:4, the writer here says, the sorrows of those will increase who run after other gods. So he's just saying, if you love anything more than you love God, your sorrows are gonna increase, especially if that thing is lost that you're living for, you're not just going to be sorrowful. Once again, you're going to be in despair. Sorrows of those will increase who run after other gods. He gives us the solution, Psalm 16, 8. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he's at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. So there's that security we so desperately need. I've set the Lord always before me. I'm serving him. I'm loving him. I'm practicing his presence. Therefore, I will not be shaken. And, uh, and then he ends by saying in Psalm 16:11, it's, it's one of my favorite verses, you have showed me the path of life in your presence is fullness of joy and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. In his presence is fullness of joy. How often do you experience that? Probably not much if you're not living in the moment and learning to practice his presence. There's an Joy that all, all the success in this world can't give you and all the suffering in this world can't take from you. A joy in his presence. So the best way to overcome idols is not with scolding or morality or self-discipline, but by seeing that the beauty and excellence of Christ is infinitely and eternally more attractive than your idol. And so what are the results of God's promised presence? Freedom from idols. Here's the next one is contentment. It's Contentment. Look at verse 5b, be content with what you have. So, so he starts off by saying, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. When I think of contentment, I immediately think of uh, Psalm 23. We spent a whole series on that uh, over a year ago. 
Uh, Psalm 23. In Psalm 23, one says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. (laughs) He's talking about contentment. That's beautiful. Because he's my shepherd, he's gonna take care of me, he's gonna protect me, he's gonna lead me, he's gonna satisfy me, he's gonna restore me. I, I, I lack nothing. That's contentment. We used a, a definition for contentment during that series. Uh, here was the definition. Contentment is the internal gracious, so it's inside out. It's not based on your circumstances, so it's internal gracious. It's a, it's a part of God's favor in our lives, internal gracious, quiet spirit that joyfully rests in the presence, in the providence of God. Now, how do I know if I'm not content? You're not going to have a quiet spirit, and you're going to find, uh, find yourself bitter over the past, complaining about the present, and worried about the future. Discontentment is sin. It is basically saying that God isn't enough. We should be the most contented people on the planet And uh, I love what C.S. Lewis says. He says, he who has God in everything else has no more than he who has God only. So what are the results of God's promised presence, freedom from idols, contentment, and God is my helper? That's your next fill in the blank. God is my helper. Verse 6 Verse 6b, he says, the Lord is my helper. Notice he personalizes it, so you need to personalize it. You need to be able to say, the Lord is my helper. Now, our biggest problems in life are not our weaknesses, but our delusions of strength that keep us from relying on God. And if God is our helper, then you are never hopeless or helpless if God has invaded your life with his glory and goodness. No matter what you're facing, you are not helpless and hopeless if God is your helper. The hopelessness of weakness is the only door to the hope of real strength in God. So you've got to come to terms with your sense of helplessness and hopelessness, and that's the doorway into God's power and strength and presence. I love the example of this found in uh, 2 Corinthians 12, 8 through 10. Remember the apostle Paul with the thorn in the flesh? And uh, he cries out three times, oh, God, take this from me. Oh, God, I can't go on. Three different times in his life with this thorn in the flesh. You remember how the Lord responded to him? My grace, my unmerited favor is sufficient for you because my power is made perfect in weakness. Now, he could have stopped right there, but he doesn't. He continues on. And he goes on and he says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses. What? You got to be kidding me. You're going to boast all the more gladly in your weaknesses? Now, I've seen people who, and, and I've done the same thing, who've hid their weaknesses, denied their weaknesses, compensated for their weaknesses, but I've seen very few people 
that would boast all the more gladly of their weaknesses. In fact, he goes on, he says, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses and insults and hardships and persecutions and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Do you hear what he's saying here? He's actually saying no suffering is too great to endure if it increases our capacity to experience the beautiful and glorious presence of God. It's almost as if he's saying, bring it on. (laughs) It doesn't matter what happens to me. Are you kidding me? The worst case scenario is just gonna drive me deeper into his love and his grace and his mercy and his presence. That's what he's saying. I love it. God is my helper. How do we get that strength from God? Isaiah 40, 31. But they who wait for the Lord, they that practice his presence shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. So what are the results of God's promised presence, freedom from idols, contentment? God is my helper. Here's the last one. I kind of combined the last two here. No fear of man. He says, I will not fear what can man do to me. So the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. Proverbs 29, 25 says, the fear of man will prove to be a snare, a trap. But whoever trusts in the Lord is is safe. That's where our security is. And so if you look to human beings more than God for your approval, worth, and value, then you will be trapped by anxiety with an over-need to please, with the inability to withdraw from abusive relationships, with the inability to take criticism when confronted, with being a coward that makes, uh, makes you unable to speak the truth, with our feelings being overly hurt, with overcommitting ourselves out of a desire for acceptance. This is, this is one of my struggles as I work through this. I'm not where I used to be, but I'm not where I need to be. And so here's a prayer that I've been praying in my own life as it relates to this. Lord, I confess that I make an idol out of people's approval. Let me be so satisfied with your presence and love that I, I no longer respond to people out of fear of displeasing them, but only in love. Remove my idols of approval, which can never give me the approval I need and can only be found in you. It's a great prayer. And I've been praying that. So what is the cure to our insecurity? God's promised presence. What are the results of God's promised presence? Freedom from idols, contentment, God is my helper, no fear of man. But here's the big question, last question. How do I drive this truth down deep into my heart? How do I, how do I really believe this? Here's the next fill in the blank. You must get good at preaching the gospel to yourself. You've got to get good at preaching. You didn't realize that you are a preacher. As I am preaching here, you need to preach to yourself every day. Did you notice what he says here in verse 6a? So we can say, so we can confidently say, so we can confidently say, keep your lives free from the love of money. Be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. So we can confidently say, so this is preaching the gospel to yourself. The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Now here's what, 
what we must keep in mind as we learn to preach the gospel to ourselves. God is always at work in your life whether you see him or not. He's always at work in your life whether you see him or not. Coming to recognize and experience God's presence is learned behavior. We've already talked about that. It's, it's through practicing the presence of God. Giving him your, the attention of your mind, the affection of your heart, doing that throughout the day. Focusing on him, living in this moment. And, um, and so every one of your thoughts carries the potential to move you a little closer, a little further from God. So even the thoughts you're thinking right now, are they moving you closer or further away from God? The things that you are talking to yourself about. Now, we speak with our mouths about 150 to 200 words a minute. Some of you speak way more than that, okay? My wife would swear up and down, I, I do. But we carry on an inner dialogue with ourselves at an astounding rate of about 1,300 words a minute. Depends on how much Red Bull or Espresso you had this morning, okay? It might fluctuate a little bit. So all day long, you're having thoughts and observations and perceptions and ideas flowing through your mind. Who you are can be no better or no worse than the thoughts that you entertain in your head. And so let me give you a couple examples in the Bible of... uh, both of these are found in Psalms, the psalmist preaching the gospel to himself. Maybe you're familiar with this one, Psalm 103, verses 1 and 2. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all of his benefits. Who's he talking to there? His soul, self. He's preaching the gospel. It's almost like, come on, soul, come on, soul. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Come on. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not his benefits. He spends the rest of the chapter talking about the benefits of God. What a wonderful way to live, just reciting and thinking and meditating on all the benefits that we have in God. Psalm 42, 5 and 6 is another example. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. Do you have those conversations with yourself? Come on. Hope in God. Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Now, I love what Martin Lloyd-Jones in his book, Spiritual Depression, writes. This is what he says, kind of explaining Psalm 42. He says, have you realized that that most of our unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? So he's basically saying, stop uh, stop listening to yourself, start talking to yourself. Take those thoughts that come to you the moment you wake up in the morning. You have not originated them but they start talking to you. They bring back the problems of yesterday and and even more. Somebody is talking. Yourself is talking to you. Now, this man's treatment in Psalm 42 was this. Instead of allowing this self to talk to him, he starts talking to himself. Why are you cast down, O my soul, he asked. His soul has been depressing him, crushing him, so he stands up and says, self Listen to me. Listen for a moment. I will speak to you now. That's, that's preaching to yourself. And so we've got to get good at that if we really truly want to experience God's presence in our life. So the battle against insecurity is a battle to embrace 
this identity characteristic that we are secure, never, ever, ever forsaken. But before we kind of move on and I end with prayer and we take communion here this morning, let me remind you of something. Even when you cannot sense your security in Christ, even when you're feeling insecure, your actual security remains unchanged in Christ. So no matter how insecure you you are, you are still secure in Christ. Even when you are unable to face the things in your life with confidence, Christ still sits, sits confidently on his throne doing all things for our good and his glory. And so the more you get to know him, the more you will be able to rest in him. So how do we know this is a fact, the cross? The cross guarantees that for us. Communion is a vivid reminder that God is for us and not against us. So let's prepare our hearts for communion this morning. Would you bow your heads with me? Just take a moment. Father God, you are, we are, we are overwhelmed with praise and thanksgiving for you reconciling us to yourself through the indispensable and costly love of Christ on the cross. And now that we are reconciled by grace through faith in Christ, we have your promised presence in our life to eliminate all insecurity. May this not just be a concept in our head, but a reality in our heart. And as we learn to practice your presence, we ask that you would, would set us free from our idols, discontentment, helplessness, and fear as we daily preach the gospel to ourselves. We pray these things in Jesus' beautiful name. And everyone said, amen. We're going to take communion. And so those of you that are watching on YouTube Live right now, you can, if you take a moment and run into your kitchen and grab some crackers or bread or uh, some uh, grape juice or juice of any kind, or even just with water, you, we would love for you to join us in this time of communion. You'll notice that uh, the ushers are going to be passing this out individually, so grab both cups, hold on to them, and uh, here's what I want you to do while you're sitting there. What is God speaking to you through this message? Just take a moment and be fully present in, in this moment and say, God... I want to know you. I want to experience you. I want to have you at the center of my life. I want to practice your presence. That would be good conversation to have even right now as we get ready to take communion. Has everyone been served? Anybody still need to be served? Everybody 
Okay, cool. So how do we know that we have his presence, that he will never, ever, ever leave us or forsake us? How, what's the basis of that? It's guaranteed in the scripture because it's written in God's word. We know that. But also, he guaranteed that through the cross. Remember Romans 8, 31 and 32? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but freely gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him freely give us all things? In other words, if he took care of our worst problem, what was our worst problem? Eternal separation from him. We were alienated because of our rebellion and sin. And if he, if he took care of that problem through his son, what he's saying here, it's gospel logic, he's got you covered. He will take care of you. And you can take it to the bank that he will never, ever, ever, ever leave you or forsake you. And these communion elements represent that. We have his presence. That's the best thing about the Christian life. So in Corinthians eleven twenty three through 26, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take the bread together. In the same way also he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's drink together. So my blessing for you is... uh, is this, you're probably familiar with this. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. Amen. Love you guys. God bless you. See you next weekend.